0: and on video stand-up. We're in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to read quickly verses 5 and following. It says this, now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins." Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Let's pray. Father, may the Word of God that is inspired by You and as we heard last week so powerfully, as it contains in it the true riches of understanding and knowledge of Christ. May it come to life in a way in our hearts that would be true to the life that was given it while it was inspired. May the illumination of it help us to see what You want us to see, that we could adequately and accurately reflect who You are. And we'll thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Grab a seat. Obviously, if you have a Bible, Second Peter chapter one. We're continuing in our series. We're in verses five and following. Now, last week, if you were here, super strong reminder in four small verses, completely chock full of incredible theology, and we turned Shay loose, and he about lost his mind. And as I was listening to him teach, I thought, man, what a perfect message for him, just in his wheelhouse. Fits his passion, fits who he is, and he nailed it. If you missed it, it was a strong reminder of the riches of all that God has provided for us in Christ. I mean, you saw in verse one that we have received the same faith as Peter. We saw in verse two that, uh, we have received now the intimate knowledge of Christ. In verse three, that he has granted to us everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through Jesus that you don't need a self-help book. You don't need to go find it somewhere. You don't need to climb a mountain and eat pizza for a week and have a vision. He's given us everything in verse three pertaining to life and godliness in Christ. And we are in verse four, fellow partakers of what he calls the divine nature. In verses one through four, if I just summarize it, it would be, this is all that God has done for you. All that he has provided. And we learned that the gospel. When we say gospel, the gospel saves, yes, but the gospel also sustains. Now, I want to just sort of set the scene for us a little bit because verses five to eleven. If verses one through four were full of a bunch of theology, truthfully, five through eleven seem relatively easy, but they are loaded. And so, I'd like to set the scene a little bit and talk just for a moment about God's initiative in our life. You need to know whether you're comfortable with it or not, that God chose you before the foundations of the earth, that you would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined you to the adoption of sons. Uh, You need to know that He saved you not on the basis of deeds that you have done in righteousness, but by His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing the Holy Spirit. Uh, You need to know that... um, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us while you were dead in your transgressions and sins, He made you alive. Which simply means from a theological standpoint, your salvation was not as if you were treading water on the surface of the water starting to get fatigued and finally relented and reached for a life raft. No, good theology would suggest that you were on the bottom of the lake, already fish food, but God, being rich in mercy, took your corpse, breathed into it life, and you became what you could never become on your own, and that is born again. Because of the work that God did in your life. The reason I started by saying if you're comfortable with that or not, it's an undeniable biblical reality that makes people really nervous. Why? Because we like to be in control. And what this suggests is that you didn't have any control of your salvation. And from a theological standpoint, that is absolutely right. God made the first move with you. He made you alive. Even though you were dead, Jesus being the hero of your story because of His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and His pursuit of you by grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus alone, that is how you were quote-unquote saved it was all god there was nothing you did in fact the only thing you did to contribute to your salvation was need it in the first place because of your sin that's it so don't get cocky don't get arrogant literally all you did was sin that's it and jesus brought everything to the table anyway and saved you and i anyway because god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son i mean that's the beauty of the gospel What this passage, though, begins to deal with is, uh, but what then? So when when God initiated in your life, did He save you, redeem you, and then like, good luck, I'm going to go up to glory, I'll see you, I don't know, 60, 70 years, and I hope it works out well. I mean, is that is that kind of how it went? Did God just sort of leave, and so now you're just religious, you're just moral, you're just a good person? That God did the heavy lifting and got you saved and now you're doing the best you can. Is that really the gospel? Does the gospel merely save or does the gospel sustain? You see, we tend to live in a world that says the gospel saves, but that was back then. And the gospel doesn't have implications on my life today. And I would suggest to you that's a false understanding of the gospel. Or maybe an incomplete understanding. Paul said the church in Galatia, in chapter three of Galatians, he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? Do you really, do you really think that the sovereign God of the universe chose you from the bottom of the lake, breathed into you life, and then just left you on your own? And I think as we hear that, we know, well, that's not true. In fact, we know that God is doing something, so it's not all up to me. So then, am I completely uninvolved? Like it's all up to God. So God's doing everything, because we know the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that in chapter eight that we are going to be, uh, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We know that Philippians tells us that um, Paul says, "I'm confident in this very thing that He who began a good work in you, that He's going to be faithful to complete it." So I could read those passages and say, "Okay, it's not up to me completely." But God is going to do a work in my life. So am I completely uninvolved? And I would suggest to you that that also was a misunderstanding of the gospel. So your coming more, becoming more and more like Jesus, is not a result of you being moral, disciplined, determined, um, being a good person. Nor is it you throwing your spiritual life in neutral, just going, "All right, God, do whatever you want in me." I'm not even involved. It's like you're just like guiding me. It's not all up to you, and it's not never up to you. In fact, what you're going to find is the Bible teaches this interesting sort of dance together between what God is doing and how it would sort of come in line or, or come in step with God. One uh, author put it this way. He says that the Christian must engage in this sort of cooperation with God in the production of the Christian life, which is a credit to Him. So, the Gospel saves you by the power of God. The Gospel is sustaining you by the power of God. But you got to get involved. you got to be a part of it. You can't just throw it in neutral and assume life change. So, for example... In the book of Romans, if you were to speed read the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, your mind would be blown at all that God did for you. I mean, it's just overwhelming. You were dead. By faith alone, He saved you. He set you free from the mastery of sin. He's called you. He's predestined you to eternal life. Just incredible stuff. Which is why chapter 12, in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, meaning 11 chapters of what God did for you, That you should offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Based on what God did for you, you should respond to that and you should offer yourself. Philippians 2 put it this way. How many of you have heard this verse or maybe this portion of the verse? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But we quit reading Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that's your part, for it's God who's at work in your life to willing to work for His good pleasure. So who really gets the credit? Did you do it? Did God do it? You see the partnership that's happening. there. There's a a cooperation of what God is doing and we get in step with Him. Romans chapter 8 puts it this way, same concept. He says, we're under obligation as followers of Jesus, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh... For if we're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if, by the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Does that seem all you, or does that seem all God, or is it an awkward mix of the two? See, the whole point is that we have a role to play, a part to play, in becoming more like Jesus. The Gospel initiates it, the Gospel sustains it, but we have a part to play. It's a work of God in which the believer participates. Are you with me so far? Now the convicting part is, we are also responsible to be a part of what God is doing. Which is why when you read in the early portions of Romans, and you get to say chapter 6, and Paul's talking about a the concept theologically of us being buried with Christ, and as Christ was raised from the dead, that we too would, would be raised to a newness of life. That, that the cross... Conquers the mastery of sin. The gospel conquers the mastery of sin. And calls us to live in a way that is presenting ourselves to God. And in chapter 6, he, he goes on to say, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Do not let sin reign in your body. And do not go on presenting yourself to sin. So again, the gospel initiates. We have a response. Now, it's with that backdrop that we start in verse 5. So in verse 5, Peter is calling his audience to a progressive and active Christianity. He's calling his audience out of the shadows to be a part of what God has initiated in salvation and what God is initiating in their sanctification. He's calling them to participate actively and progressively in response to what God has already done. Verse 5. He says, for this reason, which reason? Well, the reason we saw before in verses one through four, of all that God did for you, for this reason, based on what God has done for you in verses one through four, applying out all diligence. Applying all diligence literally could be translated like, "Do your best." Uh, it could be translated, uh, "Try as hard as possible." So he's bringing this right from the beginning, that growth in Christ is a choice. It doesn't come without effort. It assumes a zeal, it assumes a commitment, it assumes a passion that with all diligence now, we are to now apply ourselves to something. You've heard the expression, by the way, that anything worth having is worth working hard for. I mean, you've probably heard some sort of that's chalk painted somewhere in your life, you've seen it, okay? I want you to think about the things in your life that were worth working hard for. So, rewind the tapes you remember when you were in school okay and some of you you're in that right now so you're working hard for something and, and you're studying and you're staying up late and you're drinking way too much caffeine and uh you know you're you're uh, you're going through the rigors of an educational process because you know at the end or if you pass the end you know looking back man that i'm um, that was worth it at least that's over with right i want you to think about uh, fitness And what we'll do in terms of passion and zeal and commitment. Like, y'all will count everything. You'll count calories. You'll count points, okay? You'll count sugar grams. You'll count reps and sets and workouts and how many times you puked. Like, you'll count all kinds of stuff. Because you know, anything worth having is worth working hard for. So you'll commit yourself to it and then see the results. I want you to think about your hobbies. You don't need to say anything out loud. It may be too convicting. But think about the amount of time The amount of energy, the amount of cash, the coin you drop on that hobby, the amount of practice, the amount of just indulgence in that hobby, and the things you'll do to commit to that hobby. I want you to think about your careers for a moment. I mean, if you know that bonus check is right there, you'll stay up late, you'll rise up early, you'll work through lunch, no problem, because you know anything worth having is worth working hard for. Tell me about your spiritual life. I mean, I'd just would love to know about your relationship with Almighty God. What's that zeal look like? What's that passion look like? That's who Peter's writing to. A group of people that needed, as you're going to see here in verses 12 and following, they needed to be stirred up by way of reminder. Look at what he says in verses 5 as it continues and following. He's going to show you eight qualities born from the gospel, sustained by the gospel as invitations of uh, for us uh, to be a partner in what God is doing in our life to get in step with him. And he walks through this list. It begins in verse 5 with faith, it ends in verse 7 with love, and in no particular order other than the beginning and the end he walks through this list. He says and in your faith, meaning born out of your relationship with Jesus, Supply moral excellence, moral excellence is virtue uh, it 's a divinely endowed ability to excel in heroic, courageous deeds to just do the right thing. And he says uh, to supply moral excellence that 's a very interesting word it 's where we get the word choreograph. It literally has the idea of supplying all the resources that are needed. So that the orchestra can do what the orchestra needs to do. It's not suggesting you're the conductor. There's another conductor. It's saying just supply all the tools, all the stuff, so that that could be the outcome. And so he's saying in your faith, supply this now moral excellence. To be diligent, to lavishly supply the most honorable Christ-like life without compromise. It's interesting he mentions that because in chapter 2, verses 2, 7, and 18, he's talking about the false teachers that he's confronting who have rejected the idea of moral excellence and instead of promoted indulgence. And he says, look, if we're talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's born out of the Gospel, it's sustained by the Gospel, and your faith, you should passionately and zealously supply on top of that moral excellence. Why? Because that's where you get credibility. Because look, if we're out hitting the, the beer bongs on the frat party on a Friday night, and we're trying to tell somebody about Jesus, we have no credibility. If morally we're ripping off anybody that blinks in business, and that's a reputation we have, we have no qualifications for talking about Jesus. So he's like, you need to supply moral excellence. Second one, keep reading there, verse five, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. Now, knowledge is insight and understanding, but this isn't just like mental assent. Uh, It's an understanding of who Jesus is, of what sin is, of who I am without Christ, of what the Gospel did in my life, of what it means to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. It's not simply knowledge about God. It's literally this sort of knowledge or belief in God. It's this sense of transfer of trust where I don't just know data. I know Christ. He is my highest aim. He is my chief end. That's what my focus is about. Verse 6, "...and in your knowledge..." Self-control. Self-control literally means to to hold oneself back. To have the discipline, the temperance, the willpower. It's interesting, I I was looking at the news early today. you got to be careful when you do that because there's little sub-articles. Huh, that's interesting. Click. All of a sudden, there's other pictures. Not fully inappropriate, but I can see where that rabbit trail is going. And in that moment, I have a very difficult decision. And by the way, this is while prepping for a message. I'm like, ah get out of there you know i'm like trying to shut that window down that's what he's talking about when he's talking about self-control to come alongside what the what the holy spirit is doing and passionately and with zeal commit as a follower of jesus to get in line with what the spirit of god is doing birthing in us self-control it's one of the fruits of the spirit by the way love and joy peace and patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness, and self-control so he's saying come alongside with what God is doing and respond in terms of self-control. Not just that. Look at verse 6 though. And in your self-control, perseverance. Now the word perseverance here is a word that means or can be translated patience, but that's probably too passive. It has the idea literally to uh, to bear under a heavy load without quitting. That I could just endure it and take it and... Um, Pile it on and never quit. And the, the ultimate nuance of this is that this endurance isn't just endurance until the time is done or the season is done. It's endurance in light of what is to come. It's the same idea that Paul said in Romans that the um, sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. So it's an understanding of this is awful. This load is heavy, but one day I'm going to be with Jesus. So bring it. Back the sink and truck up. Because I have faith in Christ, and I can endure, and I can suffer under hardship because I know my eternal destiny is with Him. So come on. Verse 6 continues. And with your perseverance, godliness. The idea of choosing God as our highest aim, having a reverence for God, a priority of Him in our life where He is first and foremost. And then in verse 7, it finishes with two externals. Both in the original language translated as a word we would translate love. One is brotherly kindness, one is translated love. The idea of brotherly kindness is the idea of a a warm reciprocal relationship. A a congenial give and take. The word love literally means a selfless with no thought of what you're going to give back to me. I'm just going to serve you anyway. That's the love he's talking about. Now, it's interesting that he finishes with love and begins with faith because that's kind of what it's all about So you place your faith in christ the gospel saves you the gospel begins to sustain you and the ultimate goal right is that we would be a people who reflect love why because we're supposed to be more like god and god is love so first john he says this about the idea of love it's, i think it's worth noting this is verses seven and following he says dear friends let us love one another for love comes from god everyone who loves has been born of god And knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? So, Peter gives now these eight things. And sort of suggests to us, that's what a normal Christian does. They recognize they're saved by the Gospel. They're sustained by the Gospel. And in partnership with what God is stirring in their life, they passionately and zealously commit themselves to the cultivation of these things in their life. And built into the passage is an assumption of continued growth and continued development. Look at verse 8. Here's where it gets, if I'm just honest with you, a little convicting. He says, "...if these qualities are yours." then they render you neither useless nor what? Unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at your life and you see these things in verses 5-7 through that we just listed present in your life, then congratulations, your faith is neither useless nor unfruitful. Congratulations. However... And you know this is coming. If you look at your life and you don't see these eight things in your life, congratulations, your faith, according to Peter, is useless and unfruitful. I mean, that stings a little bit. I mean, I've got James kind of echoing in my head when James talks about faith and deeds and he says, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. For faith without deeds is useless, or dead, or good for nothing. So what's Peter saying? Because I don't know about you, but this I mean, it stings a little bit. What, what's he saying? He's saying if these characteristics are yours, then God is moving in your life. They're yours and they're increasing. Then your faith is actually useful and fruitful. But if these things are not, you might want to double-check that you're connected to the real thing. You, you might just want to double check that Christ is actually Lord of your life. See, a profession of faith in Christ that is not in diligent pursuit of the Lord through the power of the Gospel is what He calls useless and unfruitful. Now, it's a common ailment. I mean, there's just so many people who profess faith in Christ sort of... I mean, I was a long time ago. I was at camp... You know, and I wanted to play dodgeball. But they said, hey, before you play dodgeball, if you want to come to Jesus... Oh, and by the way, nobody gets to play dodgeball until people come to Jesus. And so I was like, all right, I'm in. So I came to Jesus and then played dodgeball. My team won. So was I saved or was I not? There's so many stories of people who say, oh, man, I was... I mean, I don't know, I was so young, you know, and uh, my friend came forward, so I did. Or people who say... Well, I don't, I've been in church for a long time, bruh. And I'm like, and, well, I mean, I serve. I give. Like, you're missing the point, right? Because we're Jesus. People want to get baptized. And you go, why do you get baptized? Well, you know, my parents, like, they'd be pretty stoked. I'm like, that's, it's not the point, right? But what makes it kind of funny is is we know stories like that. And so the thing that I think Peter is mentioning is that understanding that the gospel saves and sustains, that's a very important point. Because what that suggests is that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, new things have come. So if I come to faith in Christ as a beer-drinking idiot, and ten years later I'm a beer-drinking idiot, we might have a problem. You, You tracking with me? So Jacob Brown, one of our seminary interns, uh, he's a senior pastor up at our church in Foothill, had an illustration that I'm going to steal, but I gave him credit. So here you go. Have you ever been in the airport, okay, and you have those long, like long aisles, and they have those people movers, and you have that choice to make, right? Like, what's the pace over there? Because sometimes people go on the people mover and then stop. And so you're like dodging traffic. But sometimes if you just walk, you can beat them, okay? so But these people movers... And what's interesting is, when it comes to the life of a believer, it's one who steps on to the people mover. And you're moving to the same destination. Some are standing, some are walking. Those who are walking will get there quicker. Those who are standing will get there eventually. But there are always people outside of that who are walking as well on their own effort, who maybe walk for a while and then stop. They get tired or slow down or whatever. Or walk for a while and stop. Now, if they're walking on their own power, they might think, hey, I'm heading to the same destination. Well, the reality is you're kind of not. And the reality is you're doing it on your own effort. What Peter is speaking to specifically are believers who are standing, not walking, not actively involved in the movement of what God is already doing in their life, and they're simply standing. Why do I say that? Look at verse nine. I think he tells us now why he's talking specifically to believers. Okay? So he who lacks these qualities is blind and short sighted, having forgotten, forgotten his purification from his former sins. Blind and short sighted, some of your Bibles might say short sighted and blind. It literally has the idea that you're not playing the long game. You're so short-sighted and blinded. You can't even see what God is doing. You're living for the now. Who are these people? These are folks who have come to faith in Christ, but the now is way too important than the someday. And so they're just caught up in the now. The here, the moment. Yeah, I'm probably drinking a little too much. I I, I probably should quit. I I probably should have clicked on that image. I was just looking at the news, but picture, picture, picture. Next thing I know, it was awkward. But I kept looking, and I probably shouldn't have. Now, they're standing on the people mover. They're going to end up in the same destination. They're just going to take a while to get there. And they're missing all of the movement, the joy, the delight that comes in obedience. Joy comes from obedience. The movement comes. The wind in your face comes. When God is moving and we are in step with Him, that's where the joy is. These people have forgotten that He has set them free already from that old life. They have forgotten the purification from their sins, and so they're short-sighted, living for the now, distracted by the world, and I would argue they don't fully understand the gospel. So if that's you, I don't teach this message to shame you, I promise you. I've been praying like all day, God, please let me be a pastor, not a grump. Let me be a pastor, not a tyrant. Let me be a pastor, not a prophet. And the difference is simply this. For some of you, man, that's you you've come to faith in christ at some point in your life and you're like hey brad look you got to manage your expectations bro i'm here okay and yeah i drink a little too much but i don't do it very often okay and i'm a little shady in business but i'm not as shady as that guy and uh my marriage is okay it's not great but it's okay all right my buddies are all divorcing but i'm not going to divorce it's too expensive so right and i don't I don't want to get too far into it, but I want you to to envision a person who has placed their faith in Christ, who's not in step with what God is doing in their life, and their spiritual life will look like that person on the people mover checking their phone. They're going to get to the destination. But what are they going to miss along the way? What joy are they going to miss along the way? What could be? If as a follower of Christ, we recognize that we've been invited into the most incredible relationship in the history of man. The sovereign God of the universe sent Jesus Christ in God incarnate to die for us that we might have a relationship with the living God. And He has not called us to Himself that we would live an unfruitful and useless Christian life. He called us to partner with Him in what He wants to do in us. He knows what you're already doing. And that gentle tap you're feeling on your heart, that gentle tap on your conscience, that gentle reminder from your spouse or a friend that's encouraging you to do what's right, they're just encouraging you to look up and be a part of what God is doing instead of just sitting there, missing the joy in it all. Does that make sense? Now, he mentions um, that um, that if these things are present in your life, uh, or if they're not present, you're you're unfruitful and useless, he goes on, Uh, to talk a little bit about in verse... uh, Where was I? Thank you. I was totally lost right there, and I panicked, and I was finding words, and none of them fit. Verse 9. Yeah, thank you. He who lacks these qualities, yeah, short-sighted and blind. Thank you. Now, look at verse 10. Very important, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to what? To make certain about your calling and His choosing in your life. Be all the more certain. Has the idea, literally, of... um, It's a term used when you would check a will to make sure a will is right and created correctly. So make sure, verse 10, that you're diligent to make sure about your calling and your choosing. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to the person who, A, is standing on the people mover, not involved with what God is doing, going, hey man, you might I'm gonna make sure that you've got a relationship with Jesus, cause you don't look much different than the guy next to you, who's walking on his own power, trying to be religious and good and moral, you look about the same, alright, in life you look about the same, and I'm just, I'm just not sure, are you this guy or that guy. Because this guy over here, who on his own power is trying to do good, be good, try hard, that guy's not going to the same place. Let's just say at some point that guy's gonna pop, and he's not gonna make it. So, but you look very similar. So, just make sure of your calling and of your um, of his initiative in choosing of you. Make sure. Just be diligent. It affirms the authenticity of your faith. In John 15, Jesus says, um, "To uh, for this reason I called you that you may bear fruit and therefore prove or affirm that you are my disciples." So, he's saying, "Look, if these things aren't present in your life, you might want to make sure." That you're in Christ. And be diligent to do it. Why? Because there's a lot at stake. He goes on in verse 10. For as long as you practice these things. Meaning as long as your life is marked by God moving and you responding. Your faith is authenticated. Verse 10. You will never stumble or trip or experience reversal. There's no loss of salvation here. It's not what he's talking about. Verse 11. For in the same way. The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. He's saying, if these are present in your life, you're practicing these things, you won't stumble, and your eternal inheritance is secure and firm and established because of the gospel that saves and the gospel that sustains. Let me just wrap up now with a couple of little takeaways. Why is Peter telling us this? I think first and foremost, he wants to remind those of us who are in Christ that your sanctification is not just up to you. That God is moving in your life. So where is He moving? What is He affirming in your life? What is He convicting in your life? What are you doing that you sense God going, Hey man, that's not like me. You need to live up. What are you doing in your life that God's going, That's what I'm talking about. Then do more of that and less of that. Because right? the gospel is working in your life. Second thing. We have to take personal responsibility for our faith. That's what convicted me about this passage. is You have a role to play in your relationship with Christ. The zeal and passion to which you commit to your walk with God is on you. So we have to be responsible. I think the third thing that strikes me in this passage is a faith um, that's not being pursued with all diligence. I think he says that's a useless and unfruitful faith. Meaning it's really not a lot of benefit to the kingdom if you're out living stupid and claiming Jesus. Now, what if, since you claim Jesus, what if we walk with Jesus and quit living stupid by the power of the gospel working through us? What would our testimony be like if we authentically follow the Lord? Final thing I want to just throw out to you is that our diligent pursuit of Christ is what authenticates our faith. Now, some people say, oh, man, I'm struggling, as if that's a bad thing. Can I just be honest with you? I think struggle is a great thing because struggle shows me you care. Struggle shows me you're listening to the Holy Spirit. Struggle shows me you're convicted, which is awesome. It's the guy who's not struggling I'm concerned about. The guy who's cool what he's doing. The guy who's struggling, I go, man, we can disciple through that. We can train you through that. We can walk you through that because that shows that God is at work in your life your faith is actually authenticated. I think Peter's writing this ultimately because the church that he is ministering to, the people that he's writing to, are struggling. And he knows it's only going to get harder. And so he's challenging them to pursue Christ and let the Gospel both save and sustain. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we uh, just wrap things up, we pray that we would be stirred by You to respond to the Gospel. That what You're doing in our life, what You're challenging us to either put to death or what You're affirming, the things in our life that, that You want us to be a part of, we want to get in step with You. We don't want to get in front of You and we don't want to go passive. We want to listen to where You're moving and we want to respond to it. And Father, we, we recognize even tonight that's the joy of walking with Jesus. And so would You help us to experience that joy in a way that would be pleasing to You and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.